Say your son's name again. Prue. I'm not going to go into this, but. Okay, let's. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning at Mass um, for your words to us. Um, stern words. Um, The, the passage from the Psalms um, was about your ways. We're going to read it tonight. The Old Duck, the Old Testament reading and the Gospel. Um, the one that I read? Um, the one that repeated the Ten Commandments? And, and Christ was saying, yeah. It wasn't Christ, it was the No, Old I'm Testament. talking about the Gospel. When he was. The Gospel yeah. reading was um, when he talked about the... Sorry? Sheep and the goats. Yeah, the sheep, and the sheep and the goats. Yeah, the and, separating. And doing what you should do for the poor and the... You know, you oh, right, 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 right. That's what you do the least amount. Yep, yep, yep. <clears throat> um, <laughs> we're into Lent, and the warnings are stern. Your warnings to us. God, what a grace. We think the threats of war and poverty and things are bad and they are, they are, but um, the thought of ever losing you eternally is unsettling. Um, um, in the readings this morning, um, you reminded us of the commandments and your law. God, and I love them. Um, you make it clear that your law is good, your way, and we're you ask us to follow it. We're not to disregard the law. Um, you are the Father. Um, Christ is your Son. You have a way. There is a law. He came to fulfill it, not to undermine it or do away with it. So um, strengthen all of us to take seriously your law, your way, everything that you made clear um, um, in the commandments. Um, and most especially for all that you made clear, Christ, in um, your taking those commandments into our everyday lives and said, um, there will be the sheet and the ghost. And, um, and you're, we were reminded of not just the sins that we commit or the, danger, the dangers we present to ourselves by, by going against your commandments, but the things we don't do. Um, we don't look after the poor. We don't visit prisoners. Um, we don't um, offer drinks to those who are thirsty or give food to those who are hungry. Um, and you told us that um, if we, um, whenever we don't do that to the least of those around us, we're ignoring you because all of us are your children. You've asked us to love everybody. So in the season of Lent, let all of us take a greater resolve in asking ourselves, what are the things that we don't do enough? We're so preoccupied in our world. God. So self-sufficient by the money that we earn, by the homes that we keep up, that we don't let go of them to take care of people who are far more needy than we are. Forgive us our sins in that way. Help all of us to make greater efforts during this Lent to take seriously what you're asking of us. 
Um, I ask a grace for um, all of those who are suffering from ailments, physical or inwardly. Um, uh, be with Marcy um, and um, be with Drew. Um, and I ask for a special grace of peace for those whose loved ones are struggling. Um, you ask us to be glad um, for everything. Um, help us not to give in to the despair that's so easy for people suffering, um, either immediately in their own lives or because of those around them. Help us not to give in to that despair, to know that um, you are good, um, that nothing happens here, that you're not turning to some good. We have got to know that in our lives. Strengthen us. Um, to make that real, to trust in you, to be glad, even when we're looking at sorrows, particularly now in Lent. We offer these prayers um, to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, can you take out the psalm? I, I, I put out some terms for the narrative. I don't think I'm going to go over it, but I think it would be good for all of you to look at it. I'll, I'll probably refer to it when we when we get to it in, in our work tonight. But um, in place of the, the lyric, I thought we could read a psalm, because it is a lyric, um, and it was appropriate. It was the reading this morning. So, And next week I'll probably, I think I'll read that. It's Psalm, I think it's 51, which is that song of grief. It's David grieving for his sins. You know, it's, a, it's, it's the middle of, I don't know when we'll see it in Lent, but I want to read it because I just think it's, it's good for all of us to, to have that first-person voice speaking for all of us about the grief and the sorrow that we feel for our own sins. So next week I'm going to plan to do that. But this is leading up to it. Um, it carries something of that in itself, but in a more positive light. So this is Psalm 19, Old Testament. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of his hands. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night whispers knowledge. There is no speech, no words, their voice is not heard. A report goes forth through all the earth, their messages to the ends of the world. He has pitched in them a tent for the sun. The sun is the source of all light, you know that. Comes forth like a bridegroom from his canopy, and like a hero joyfully runs its course. From one end of the heavens it comes forth, its course runs through to the other. Nothing escapes its heat. Everything receives the sun. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The decree of the Lord is trustworthy, giving wisdom to the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The statutes of the Lord are true, all of them just. More desirable than gold, than a hoard of purest gold, sweeter also than honey or drippings from the comb. By them your servant is warned, warned. Obeying them brings much reward. We are warned, all of us. We're asked to be obedient. Who can detect trespasses? trespasses? Who can detect trespasses? Cleanse me from my inadvertent sins, also from arrogant ones, a stranger's servant. Let them never control me. 
And shall I be blameless, innocent of grave sin? Let the words of my mouth be acceptable, the thoughts of my heart before you. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay. Just a quick review. I really want to get to the Grand Inquisitor because we have been here for two weeks. Um, last week I asked everybody to give some thought to the fundamental theme, the, what I called intuition at the center of the book. You know, I believe that every work of art has, it's like an unspoken light. It's at the center of the poet's soul. It's that one unspoken word, that light, that gives rise to all the multiplicity, everything that's confusing and you know, spreading out in a novel of this size. There's got to be something there at the center unifying it, or it would fall off into space, and it would go off everywhere. What is that unspoken intuition? What is it that holds the whole thing together? Um, I may not be doing justice to this, and I may be chewing off more than I can here, but here. Um, I think the great theme of the entire novel is, um, is a people undergoing a trial of faith. I believe that in my heart's heart. That's its central theme. It's about a Russian people undergoing a trial of faith. An older traditional Christian world, old holy mother Russia, is being pierced, violated by a modern non-religious way of life. Rational modes of dealing with the world replace faith and the almost godlike powers they seem to give man encourage him to doubt the old ways, to question the existence of God, and even to question the role of love in his life. People are confused. They don't even know if love is real. Man finds himself alone, confused, not knowing any longer what to believe or who to trust. He doesn't even know any longer who he is. He's thrown back on animal instincts of self-preservation or simply of using others for his own protection or benefit. Remember that Dimitri calls himself a, a beetle, a bug, a spider, something less than human. Um, or he identifies himself with the newly educated class and he looks on, down on those around him who are uneducated, the folk or the newly emancipated serfs. And I've said this before, and I think this is really what's at the core of the book. Whenever a culture is undergoing radical changes, um, people no longer know what to do. The things they've <coughs> taken for granted, the customs that have formed their lives, aren't there anymore, but they do. What we see going on in this book is that very often people take on personas. Um, Fyodor calls himself a buffoon, a fool, and he flouts it in some way. He doesn't know what else to do. Dimitri calls himself a buffoon. If, if you haven't gotten there yet, you'll know. Um, when we get to the, the interrogation section, when Dimitri is captured, or when he, when he flees trying to get money and then follows uh, Grushenka, hoping to have one last night with her, um, everything in his life changes and the police catch up with him. I'm giving something away here. I hope I'm Hope I'm not doing too much here, but the police come and accuse him, interrogate him. It's a humiliating scene. For those of you who've watched it, you know it's um, he keeps 
in his mind, it's so absurd for them to be accusing him what he's been accused of, that he keeps telling them what they, what they want to hear, that he's done, that he's done this, and, and he's doing it with a sense of mockery because he knows it's so absurd. And even when he's honest, they don't believe him. They're patronizing, they're convinced he's guilty, so that everything, this is really crucial, everything he says, they reinterpret in life of beliefs they already hold. It's a humiliating scene, and I, I'm convinced, I'm absolutely convinced, that Dostoevsky could do it the way he does because he suffered through it himself. Remember, he was accused from that Bolinsky group and sentenced to jail, was sentenced, and was going to be executed. He was pulled out in front of a firing squad. He had to have been interrogated. I'm, I, I'm assuming they had him undress. Because if you read that scene, you know if at the end of it they have him undress. He's embarrassed to be undressed. He's humiliated. He, he can't believe that they're going to ask him to do that. For what? In a sense, that undressing is symbolic. Um, he, he has to take off everything that covers him. I want to go back to that because Father had a wonderful homily. I think it was over the weekend, I think where he talks about Adam and Eve covering up, you know, after the fall when they disobey God and God comes looking for them, they're covered up. Father did a wonderful homily because he said, they not only cover themselves from God, they cover themselves up from each other. So he doesn't mean just physically. When they disobey God, their loves are disordered. They don't know how to love each other anymore. The love is turned in on themselves, that's the beginning of the fall. It's the beginning of what we know as the fall. We put clothes on because we're embarrassed. There are things to hide, physically and spiritually. When Demetrius is forced to undress, this is when you get there, they take his underwear, they take his dirty socks. He, he meditates on his, the ugliness of his toes. We don't think anything about that, but if we were in a public setting and somebody made us undress, I'd be surprised if we didn't look at our toes and think how ugly they are. I mean, he's, he's virtually undressed completely. He's naked. So um, this, this experience that I've been struggling to describe of, of losing a, a human being losing his way when changes are so deep, he doesn't know who he is. He can't turn to the roles anymore. They're not there. Um, nothing, nothing can sustain him. And I asked the question after we did that, when any of us in the midst of that kind of change, and we have nowhere to turn, is there a center to which we can turn that's unchanging? And it's seemingly, is absolutely clear about that. There's only one unchanging center. And it's not just God, because everybody knew that anyway. It's Christ, because Christ came into the world, took on our nature to show us what to do. And we know from everything he taught us that most of what he taught us will put it put us at odds with our world. So there's this unburied center, you know, that haunts the book, this Christ figure that's everywhere present. But at this way, what I'm trying to describe is what I think is at the center of this novel, because Dostoevsky's not dealing with just a character or two. It's not like a Hemingway story or Melville gets really close to it. Hawthorne gets somewhat close, but you, even though in Hawthorne, if we're dealing with the early founding, in, in Dostoevsky, we're dealing with a whole people. We're dealing with every class of people. Um, a whole nation is, is being presented to us to, to watch what I'm calling this, this trial of, of faith. Um, so in one sense, interestingly, we, um, 
the, the, the novel is a window by which we can look into the Russian soul. And we're watching a Russian soul struggling with its identity because of these Western influence. We're aware of it in every page. But I want to turn that around because I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm, I'm two-thirds of the way through the book and I'm aware of something that I, want, I don't want to put out there right now. But, but if, if, if the, the novel is a window by which we can look in at the Russian soul because of these Western influences, it's also a window by which we can look out at those Western influences. And I think that's, to me, crucial, because it seems to me one of the things that happens when we read this novel is we can't read it. And I'm think, I, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself, because I know Susanna said the same thing quite independently of me. Her way of describing it is every once in a while she'll read, and she gets so overwhelmed by the emotional content, it's just hard to sustain it, you know, because they are so emotional. That's not Western. Pick up a Jane Austen novel, another world, absolutely other world. So what we can't read this novel, I don't think, without feeling that the characters that we're dealing with live much closer to the bone, much closer to their hearts. They wear their hearts on their sleeves constantly. They're not embarrassed about, well, Musev is, because Musev is showing the influence of Western. He wants to show that he's above everybody. So it seems to me one of the things that, that we learn in looking back through that window is the way in which Western culture has used its powers of reason to cover its emotions up, to disguise itself, to, to clothe themselves, to, to not be exposed. C.S. Lewis has made that argument. I've, I've referred to that book before. It's called Abolition of Man. In the opening chapters, he talks about men without chests, and the argument that he makes is that one of the problems in the Western world today is that we have intellectualized everything. He said, the problem isn't that our heads have grown too big. It's the atrophy, atrophy of the chest, the atrophy of the heart. We've shrunk in our capacity to feel. And he said the great task of our age, and I, I happen to agree with this <coughs> as a teacher, is learning how to love the right way, because so often our loves are disordered. We think we love well, and we don't. Um, so what Dostoevsky is doing is is giving us a two-way window. And so it's a window into the Russian soul. We, that's the, the immediate experience. But I think indirectly, if we're thinking about it, it should raise some questions. What about the Western world that's implied? Because you're watching all these people take on Western values and what it does to them. Okay, So that's one of the great things about this book. It, it not only shows us Russia, I believe pretty seriously that it shows a lot about ourselves indirectly. It's our world, it's our modern world. Um, I've spoken about the tensions that most people live in. It's a, it's a strain, this constant strain to keep up with appearances, to seem to be, it's like an extension of what we read in Hawthorne, you know, with the Puritan group trying to show how good they were. When, when we understand that there's something else going on to them that they can't get to. Are you all aware of what I'm talking about right now? Do I need to? Remember, all, all the Puritans who condemn Hester, she, Hawthorne describes it in such a way as that Hester becomes aware that so many of the people who pass her, particularly the women, make her aware that they're, they're feeling something, that they identify with her, but they can't talk about, because to do that would imply they're in sin, like her. I mean, their whole attitude is, 
she's in sin. She's among the damned. We're among the saved. So um, this strain to keep up appearances, to seem to be righteous, to seem to be good, takes its toll on everybody in this book. Um, in one sense, the whole book, I, it, it really, it, the whole book is about an unmasking of a people. It's going to be true of Theodore, it's going to be true of Dimitri, it's going to be true of Ivan, it's going to be true of Alyosha. Alyosha is going to go through a, um, a horrible crisis. He's, he's, all the people learn something about themselves. Dimitri will say in the interrogation, he learned more about himself in that one night than all of his, I don't know how 30, how old he is, somewhere around 30. Um, but so, Theodore, Dimitri, the captain, and Kolya, if you got there, the young boy, all of them call themselves fools, buffoons. And they're all bright people. The, the boy is, is precocious, the young boy Kolya that we'll meet at the end of the novel. They're all bright, they're all sensitive. And there's something unnerving, they're trying to be somebody. And, and don't quite know how to be that somebody. So it seems to me that's the underlying tension of the whole book. We've talked about the novel and the narrator. Remember the novel, I've said, is different from the epic because it's, it's rooted in an open-ended past. We're not in a closed world. It hasn't, it hasn't happened. Even though in this world, we know that what the narrator is talking about happened 13 years before. But we're, we're more immediately in the present. And I've said that the novel that we've, we're looking at has a number of qualities that I think we can distinguish. One of them is this Manipian satire, this quality of Manipian satire, where um, it's not just a satire of one character, it's a satire of a whole world. And I've suggested that Theodore is probably the most perfect image. In Manipian satire, we have a mirror that's fractured. And, and it becomes a prism by which we see everybody in the book, everybody is a little bit dislocated. They've all lost their place. They're struggling to find a center. Um, that's one of the qualities, the Manipian quality. It's also a detective novel. Not novel. The novel's basically asking the question, who's there? We can say to Fedor, who is he? Do we even know? Who's Ivan? Does, or Ivan, who, does he even know? He doesn't. And the, as, the, as you read on more, you're gonna find out he's gonna go through an identity crisis. He's the great skeptic. Demetrius will say in the, in, night, in the night of the interrogation, I've learned more about myself. Um, when we look at characters, um, do we know who they are? And we can't read this novel without being aware that over and over and over again, the community of people surrounding these characters misread them all the time. When, when just for one example, but it's, it's true everywhere, they misread everybody, everybody. They think they know other people and they don't. When Dimitri is interrogated and, and he presents evidence in support of his own case, the people all turn on him because of their interpretation of what had happened before. So whole people, I want to come to that because it's crucial, we're in the middle of what I would call an infernal world. It's Dante's. People think they understand and they don't. What the book makes clear to us is only, the, only those who love understand other people. And most people in the book, as we know, misunderstand all the time. And put the, put the narrator of that, the center of the statement I just made. 
the, the narrator is a limited, um, offers a limited point of view. He's telling the story about characters he's, he knows. But he often goes into the minds of characters when there's no way he could have known what was going on in that character. All, lots of them. It's not just um, Alyosha. It's lots of them. Does he misread them? Hmm? Does he misread them? That's what I'm saying, Doc. I don't think he does. E either that or we blow the Hornadal apart. I think what we learn from him, because he is, he's, not a, he's not an unknown omniscient figure, he's an actual person in the village, that he, would put, that he would take the time to put this novel together, to objectively present what's there, Alyosha's record, written record, or what he's gleaned from talking with people. For him to put these together and then offer readings of what goes on, because you know when we go along, we're, we're pretty much convinced when we've got, let's say the boy Kolya, and he's describing Kolya. We get in his mind oftentimes. There's no way the narrator could have done that. So we either have to say this guy's an idiot, or we're learning something about the way in which people can relate to other people if they're distanced from them, but they also love them. I think it's what the narrator's doing. So it's got a manipian quality. It's got a detective quality. Who's there? Um, who killed Fyodor and why? A trial is going to take place and people are going to be absolutely convinced of certain things. We're not there yet. One of the serious questions we have to ask is, do they get it right? The defense and prosecuting attorney and the people, how well do they read Dimitri? Um, what's going to happen to this man? What's his fate? What's his destiny when he's accused of murdering his father? It's about murdering the father. So one of the things that Dostoevsky's doing in this detective vein is exploring, and I just think this is absolutely central to the whole work, he's exploring the limits of reason, the claims of the West particularly, um, to use reason to do what it thinks it can. There's a hubris to what people do. They claim with their rational powers to be able to do things. Do they? It just, what it does is accentuate this, what I'm calling this trial of faith. Old Russia, old mother Russia, world of faith, of, of serfs, is coming into a modern world in which reason is the dominant power. And there's, it sets up this conflict. Um, Dostoevsky is exploring reason and its limits all the time. I'm going to come to that when we go to the book. Um, <coughs> so we've got a number of interrogations. Um, the Dostoevsky, the, sorry, the, the interrogations around Dmitri when he's accused of killing his father. We're going to go to a section today shortly after the Grand Inquisitor when, remember, this, after Zosimov gets in that duel and then he pulls out of it, he doesn't fire the shot and he embarrasses his squadron, his platoon, and they all call him to task and then suddenly realize what a brave thing it was he did and the women crowd around. They want to hear this story of a soldier who didn't fire a shot, sounds insane. Um, he's visited by a stranger who is so taken with his circumstances and we learn from the exchanges between them that the stranger himself killed somebody. He actually ended up killing the woman he loved. And he's, he's lived 14 years when the story opens. He, he, he comes to Alyosha because of what Alyosha did. This is four year, 14 years after his murder, after he murdered the woman because he's so taken by this man who would publicly confess what seems to be a cowardice. They talk at length for a time, and we're going to get to it, I don't want to give it away, 
but he finally confesses and the verdict of all the people, the judges, the commissioners, the doctors, are all that he was insane. How well did they read him? They everybody, the, the whole world. We're back in Dante's in Inferno. It's a world in which people think they know how to read others and completely misread. So it's a recurrent thing. Think about all the trials. The, the Grand Inquisitor in, involves a trial. All these heretics who are um, executed. <coughs> so it's got a manipian satire quality, it's got a detective quality, and it's got what I call a carnival quality. It's a world in which things are turned upside down. Um, it reinforces the importance of dis rediscovering a center. Um, when changes like this take place, um, to whom do people go? To what will they go? Um, the ones in charge, the functionaries of the new bureaucracies, the officers, the doctors, the psychologists, the commissioners, the lawyers, the prosecuting defense, the, you know, they think they know what they're doing, all of them. They're men of reason. We're watching a bureaucratic world artificially impose itself on an old culture. They all think they know what they're doing, and, and what we can't read it without coming away seeing um, what they not, they not only misread things, they've got everything wrong. They, they mostly get it wrong because they're so proud and think they get it right. It's like Dante's hell. I mean, that's what makes them so blind, their pride and their accomplishments. Uh, and we've got the narrator, whom we've already talked about. So those are just some of the, you know, the tensions that we've been looking at. T -t -t Tonight, right now, I want to go to the Grand Inquisitor and, and a couple of the scenes that follow that. But, that's any questions about that or comments or? I have one comment. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm Surprise. <laughs> I kind of have a mixed feeling about this because the influence of the West, I think Mother Russia would have a problem whether the West was part of it or not. Was what? Sorry? The whether West was what? The, the West had influence or not. Yeah. That's my whole. Thing. It's like saying the West brought all bad things and Russia had all the good before, and I don't feel that. I don't want to, I mean, I. You know what I'm saying? I yeah, I do. I'm, Here, what I, I want to just make two comments, and what you're dealing with is hypothetical, and I don't want to get there because it's I, hypothetical. You're in, a, you're in another world, you know, we're dealing with the book. Right. I don't think what Dostoevsky is, is showing is that it's all black and white or bad, but I think he's. We can't read this without being aware that those are the terms of the struggle. Let me just give an but, example. Yeah, but wouldn't the struggle happen even if you didn't I don't have the West see that's a hypothetical. We're not there. I don't know. Okay. You're in a you're in a you're in a, an abstraction. I don't want to okay. what we can say about this world concretely in, in any of the scenes that we look at is um, we're watching a this struggle and um, let me put it as positively as I can. Just guess he's critiquing it. Um, we're going to see how serious that critique gets at the end of the trial. But, but we're already getting intimations, I mean, all the way through, particularly in all these interrogations where the doctors who keep making, who say, <laughs> the one stupid doctor who tells Kolya or the parents of Elusha, um, you've got to go to Italy and you've got to go to Germany and you've got to go here. You know I mean, it's just what the doctors are recommending over and over and over again is stupid. And admittedly, you could say that's medical science 150 years ago, you know, but 
Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, let me put it in the positive light. Dostoevsky could not do what he did if his powers of reason weren't exceptionally developed. The light that he has on this. But I, but I, so I want to, I, I want to be, I'm not, if, I don't want to give a black white, I'm trying to just describe what I think is there. Um, I, I, he could not have done what he did if he, his mind wasn't, that, that he didn't see as much as he did, that he, he was capable of taking in as much as he did, and at the same time show the limits of the reason that he was, the very powers of reason that he was drawing on himself to do this. In that sense, I'd say he, he reminds me of Shakespeare. The Shakespeare is, is so extraordinary, brilliant. He shows how capable people are of doing good things when they use their minds well, but he's also showing how sinister people can become because of the way they use their minds. Okay. And I just want to underscore that and then go on. I was talking with Suzanne about it. That um, I, was, I was relating to Satan. I don't want to go there, but our, our powers are... Take away our powers of reason, and how do we know what to do with our hearts, our feelings, our emotions? If we learn to see something, to see the truth of something, it's much easier to find a guide to do, to help, because we've got a guide to try to help us to do what we were confused about before. But watch what the mind does when it becomes bad. Lucifer didn't have a body. He was all mind and will, absolutely sinister. And, and I think our belief is that his powers of intellect are vastly beyond ours. I mean, I, 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 it frightens me to think that any human being think he'd be capable of going up against Lucifer in a battle of wits. You're talking about the greatest angel that was, you know, Iago. Think about some of the eagle, Smerdjikov. We're going to look at a scene tonight that I think is going to get to that. Dostoevsky is very clear on how great the intellect is and how often it's misusing what people do with it. Are we? Sorry. God, I'm not sure what you're saying. Are you saying that you don't see any effect from the West in? I'm just the saying. I'm just saying if the West had was taken out of it, would they still have the struggles that they're still having? It's just a. It's just an arbitrary. Yeah, it's hard. It's impossible to answer, but. Yeah. I got a question about reading. When you're making some statements about, do you read this particular scene or look at what it in, let's say, um, the the not the nothing. Trial where they're asking him questions and how they may be misreading. You're talking about Dimitri? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the captain and the other people there that are asking him questions and what they may be seeing, and you're relating that to loss of reason or what is reason done. What is the difference between that and just a character in a play who got it wrong? I mean, to me, to me, I read it and I go, oh, okay, you know, so he got it wrong, or maybe I think he got right. it wrong, or whatever. But you're reading a whole lot more into it than I'm just like, yeah, I don't see it. Yeah, because it's not just the one scene, Mark. It's, and by the way, I don't no, want to... This is not the whole book. I'm just looking at yeah. it and going, okay. Yeah, but it is what it is, the book. Well, yeah, it's throughout. Here, I want to do, I mean, two responses. One is, I wouldn't call it the loss of reason. What I'm talking about is the way in which reason is so often misused. And I've tried to address this really specifically, you know, and I said early on that one of the interesting things to me, it's a hypothetical again, is the Russia didn't grow up with a philosophic tradition. The West has. We've got that. They didn't. Peter pulls this all in, you know, in a century. So we're talking about a radical change in a short amount of time. But I'm not. I'm, there, I hope I'm not. They. I've not said anything like dealing with 
or describing this in terms of a loss of reason because I don't it think that's what's going on. Would have been misused, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's that what Dostoevsky is showing us again and again and again is this Western influence and, and, the, and its effect on this culture and he's doing it often enough so that it's something we've got to pay attention to and it's going to raise certain questions for us. That's, that's all. Well, I'm, I've given you a lot of scenes, and I don't think you can ignore them, and they're going to they're going to come to a crisis at the end. But you know, I've been with the Russians, and one thing that always has struck, struck in my mind: we brought them from the Caspian because they didn't want to develop it, and and they wanted it to be where the way it was. And we brought them; we brought a whole bunch of them to to Galveston. And we gave them a whole bunch of pictures and showed them that this was just like the Caspian. It was barren, it was swampy, it was bug-ridden, it was the whole thing. And here we are in this playground, literally. And and we took them to, to meals and restaurants and the like, and they 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 were just astonished that this environment changed into this particular situation. You could transform something so completely, yeah. But, the, but at the end of the day, when we finished up with them, the one thing we said, well, isn't this, isn't this worthwhile? This is what, this is, isn't this good? Wouldn't you like this too? Wouldn't you like this too, you know? And the guy said to me, he says, but you don't have black caviar. Money caviar. And well, you know, you've yeah. got the Euro River supplied, you yeah. know, supplies all the yeah. black caviar to, yeah. to their whole world. Yeah. And uh, they, 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 they don't get. Huh? Well, no, I don't think, God, I think, I, this is so, we've got to be careful here. I want to, I want to stay close to the book. I really want to, but, if, you know, if you look at the science fiction stuff that's being written today and you, and you watch the tendency of a science that's not grounded in a religious belief or a respect of nature, there's a serious abortion, cyber, human robots that we can create artificial intelligence that we can be God. I mean, there, there are dangers here. I don't want to go there I, because we're not there. But in Dostoevsky's world here, just in the scenes that he's showing, it's a constant that keeps coming up in whatever form, whether it's in Musev or Rakuten, who's a seminarian, who is a snake. What he does with Alyosha is just sad to watch. Um, anyway, what Dostoevsky's doing is rendering a culture in conflict. And I think in one sense it's, it's very modern. It's the same thing. It's similar in form to what we saw in Moby Dick when Melville was dealing with that conflict between a scientific way of looking at the world and a religious. You can go back over that book and watch Ishmael do what he's doing and, and you'll just see it from an American perspective. We're, we're in a Russian world now, but Dostoevsky is aware of that. And we're, you know, we're not there, but this is the threshold of communism and a scientifically oriented world. Um, anyway, let's, let's go back. This is, it's my effort to try to do some justice to what I think is the major tension that holds this book, to, that unifies because he, there's not a section of the world he's not dealing with. The officials, the serfs, the rising educated class, the kids, the soldiers, you know, um, the royal class with its balls and elegance and the, it's all there. Hmm? 
The monks. The monks, thanks. <clears throat> He's showing us a whole culture uh, at a time in history when that culture is struggling with something. So, here, Grand Inquisitor, let's go. We've been talking about this forever. <laughs> and Carl's really been struggling with it, and I'd, I'd like to make his struggles worse. <laughs> <laughs> You know that that's not true. That's my story. <laughs> you remember in the rebellion chapter just preceding this that, that Yvonne was telling Alyosha um, something about himself. And he was, what he was basically doing was expressing the difficulty he has with the notion of God. It's the Job story. He... He, um, it, it's the Job story, but it's, it's more current and, and, and more concretely related to our world. And remember, he describes all of the atrocities by the Turks and what they did with kids. And, and he makes the point that nobody should compare humans to animals because um, animals should not be criticized for something. They don't have reason. They don't have reason. And there it is again. In fact, it's going to come up in the, um, the Zosma story when Zosima talks with a young man and says, everything in creation is moving to, towards God, but they don't have reason. Only man does. And it makes man capable of doing these hideous things. So he describes all the atrocities that the Turks did, and then he described the atrocities of the Genevans, you know, with Richard um, petting him on the back when they took off his head. And so we, we get an image of how sensitive Ivan is to suffering. And he, the, the chapter ends with um, him saying, it's not that he doesn't believe in God, but he can't stomach his world. And he uses the image of a ticket. I, um, I pass on that ticket. Huh? Yeah. Um, he doesn't want it. And Alyosha responds to him by saying, because remember, at the crux of Ivan's argument, remember he said, um, the mother may forgive the tormentors of that child, but she has no business trying to ask that child to forgive them himself because he was the one who suffered. And he goes on to make this point, underscore this point. Adults are responsible. They're the ones who took on the effects of the fall from Adam and Eve. Children are not. It's the parents who heap these things because children, when they're young, are innocent, so they don't carry these disorders and what, particularly what people do with their minds. So it's the innocence of kid, and then he ends by asking Alyosha this question. If there were, if you could kill one person, one innocent kid, and you could be the architect of a world and you knew the condition for its good and it rested on your killing that one child, would you do it? And Alyosha says, no, I would not, because he cannot justify taking the life of and then Alyosha raises the question of Christ because he says there was one innocent person who did um, die for everybody. And that leads um, Ivan to, to tell him the story of the Grand Inquisitor because it, it immediately deals with Christ, what he did. So on page, um, um, this is really interesting, page 246, he says he begins his story just like, this is really interesting, just like all good artists, Homer and Aeneid, or, or, or Virgil, for example. 
But here too it's impossible to do without a preface. You see my action takes place in the 16th century and back then, back then it was customary in poetic words to bring higher powers down to earth. I don't need to me mention Dante. You remember because Homer begins his epic by invoking Calliope. The gods are everywhere there. Virgil begins his, epi um, his epic by invoking Calliope. So all of the ancient epics always started by bringing somebody down to help talk about divine things. So he's going he's gonna to deal with Christ. On page 249, just a night after a day of executions in which almost a hundred heretics were burned, Christ appears. 249. He appeared quietly and conspicuously, but strange to say, everyone recognized him. And you know what happens. He heals some people. Um, somebody touches a gown and, and they're healed. And then um, at that time, a, a burial procession is ending and they're carrying out the casket of a little girl who's dead. And when they come out, they ask him to heal her, and he does. She sits up, and everybody is startled by what Christ does. The, um, the cardinal sees what Christ is doing and immediately tells his guards to arrest him and put him in jail. On 2.50 that night, the, um, the Grand Inquisitor, the Cardinal, comes to Christ in the cell with the two of them alone. Um, um, and Christ says practically nothing as this Grand Inquisitor inter interrogates him, <coughs> puts him on trial. Um, um, on the bottom of 2.50, and the prisoner is silent too, just looks at him without saying a word, but that must be so in any case, Devon laughed again. The old man himself points out to him that he has no right to add anything to what's already been said once. That if you like, that if you like is the most basic feature of Roman Catholicism. In my opinion, I don't want to touch on this right now, but when we're done going through it, I want to come back to this question. That's the most basic feature of Roman Catholicism, in my opinion at least. Everything they say has been handed over by you to the Pope. Therefore, everything now belongs to the Pope, and you may as well not come at all now, or at least don't interfere with us for the time being. Um, put down, was it not you who said so often then, I want to make you free? But now you have seen these free men, the old man suddenly adds with a pensive smile, as this work has cost us dearly, he goes on, looking sternly at him, we have finally finished this work in your name. For 1,500 years we have been at pains over this freedom, but now it's finished and well finished. So he's saying basically, you have no business coming down, interfering with the work that we've accomplished. Okay, go down. Um, know then that now precisely now these people are more certain than ever before that they're completely free, and at the same time, they themselves have brought us to their freedom, brought us their freedom, and obediently laid it at our feet. It's our doing, but it's what, but is it what you wanted, this sort of freedom? freedom? Again, I don't understand how the issue says. Is he being ironic? Not in the least. He precisely lays it to his and his colleagues' credit that they have finally overcome freedom and have done so in order to make man happy, he's saying. Go on over. Um, let's see. He talks about man um, being in the condition of a rebel. And then he goes on to say in 252, 
Um, it's like a crucial prelude to the whole thing. And I want to preface what's going on here because I, I think the Grand Inquisitor is probably the most dense chapter in the whole book. Because narrative is simple, it just lays out descriptions and exchanges. What we're getting here is Ivan's thinking. He's an intellectual and he's really dense. He's meditating, he's telling a story about the three temptations, but he's putting it together not in one, two, three order. He's talking about each one of them as, as having these effects that it did away with miracle, mystery, and authority. Isn't it the three? Um, but he says here at the beginning, on 252, he said, not if all the wisest men in the world were gathered together, over time, would anybody be able to come up with the nature of these three temptations? Because three, those three temptations tell us everything there is to know about man. 252. If all of these people were brought together and given this task to think up to invent three questions such as would not only correspond to the scale of the event, but moreover would express in three words and in three human phrases only the entire future history of the world and mankind, do you think that all the combined wisdom of the earth could think of anything faintly resembling in force and depth those three questions that were actually presented to you then by the powerful and intelligent spirit in the wilderness, the devil? Okay. Um, now, here's the... I want to go through the three miracles and then just ask a couple of questions. But you know, in the first one, um, and Luke and and Matthew follow a different order, but um, in the first one, um, the devil, oh, by, and here's what I want, that this is really crucial. These temptations precede Christ's ministry. He, he, he answers these before he begins his ministry. That's how crucial they are, okay? So, um, because it says in both of them, immediately after he began his ministry, he went to, in fact, I think he goes, in one of them, he goes to, Bethlehem or Galilee, and it speaks, they, the Galileans speak positively of him and then disbelieve him. And Christ makes the point, um, no prophet is ever honored in his own country because they don't believe, even though he's done these extraordinary things. That's how important faith is for this whole thing. But it's after these temptations that he begins his ministry. So the, these are crucial in this account to what he does. <clears throat> Here's the, the comment I want to make to, to try to help. He doesn't take them in order. What he's doing is taking each of them, but he's showing them that all of them have the same effect, that they're answering um, the importance of miracle and um, mystery and authority for mankind, because those are the fundamental issues that define everything we do, according to Yvonne. So, um, page 252, towards the bottom. Decide yourself who was right. You were the one who questioned you then. Recall the first question. Its meaning, though not literally, was this. You want to go into the world, and you are going empty-handed with some promise of freedom, which they, in their simplicity and innate lawlessness, cannot even comprehend, which they dread and fear. For nothing has ever been more insufferable for man and for human society than freedom. But do you see these stones in this bare, scorching desert? Turn them into bread, and mankind will run after you like sheep. Because even though man goes around saying the most important thing he wants is freedom, every time he gets it, 
he tends to give it up for whatever it is he wanted the freedom for. Okay? Here, the first temptation presents this. Christ has been um, um, fasting for 40 days. He's got to be starving. The devil goes to him and says, um, turn these stones into bread. And Christ's answer is, man doesn't live by bread alone. He lives by every word from the mouth of, word from the mouth of God. Go down on 252. But you did not want to deprive man of freedom and rejected the offer. For what sort of freedom is it, you reasoned, if obedience is bought with loaves of bread? That is because very often, if you're faced with the choice between dying or living, you would take bread. And how many men, which if they're going to die, I mean, let's say they're starving, if they had to choose between having bread or the word of God, which would they take? By the way, this is so crucial. Homer did this. Those of you who remember Homer, you remember when Odysseus was on the way home and they came to the island of Helios, who was the last one before they went home. Everybody was warned not to eat of that, those cattle and it was clear from the description that they were eternal. Those were Plato's platonic forms. So what they're dealing with is just not physical bread, they're dealing with a metaphysical reality as well. They were warned, don't eat that cattle. And they were facing starvation and said it would be better to eat the cattle than die here or die at sea. They make a choice. They eat the cattle, they go to see their parish. Odysseus go homes alone. That's when they all die. So this element of food is not a small one. We can't live without it. We can't live without it. And God says, man doesn't live by bread alone. So Yvonne goes on. He says, uh, on top of 253, who can compare to this beast, for he has given us fire from heaven? Do you know that centuries will pass and mankind will proclaim with the mouth of its wisdom and science that there is no crime and therefore no sin but only hungry men? Because science maintains that the most important thing is man is this instinct for self-preservation. What he wants most is food. Give him food, he'll be okay. Because science is not going to deal with a metaphysical reality. Science, physics, metaphysics, beyond. Metaphysical reality is an oxymoron. I don't believe it is, but um, so <clears throat> science can answer the question if, if it's if if the basis of its thinking is empirical. Um, they can't disprove God. They can't prove it. That's a question beyond science. Um, he's just saying science. Whenever I mean, science can't ultimately answer what Christ is doing. Um, that there's no crime. We know that after Freud and modern psychologists that there are no sins. Everything that happens, the disorders that we commit, the crimes that we commit, were caused by disorders that we've inherited. Fix those disorders and we'll stop committing crime. I don't think they believe that anymore. There, scientists <laughs> continue to claim that. I just This is not an absolute, but there are scientists who do. They shall seek us out again underground in catacombs, hiding, for we shall be persecuted and tortured. They will find us and cry, feed us, for those who promised us fire from heaven didn't give it. Then we shall finish building their tower, for only he who feeds them will finish it. Only we shall feed them in your name, for we shall lie that it's in your name. Oh, never, never will they feed themselves without us. No science will give them bread as long as they remain free. But in the end, they will lay their freedom at our feet and say to us, better that you enslave us, but feed us. So there's the first one. So what he's saying is, 
the desire for life, human weakness is so great that as much as it cries for freedom, it doesn't want it. It's if, if it's a choice between freedom and dying, it will eat bread to preserve its life. By the way, Suzanne and I lived in, um, in uh, New Hampshire for a couple of years when I taught there. You all know what the motto is of the, the state motto? Mm -hmm. Live free or, Live free or die. die. Live free or die. I mean, that's such a slap in the face of that. They're saying, give up our bread. We're going to die fighting for freedom. So there's a state that in, that's saying, self-preservation is not the thing that drives us in New Hampshire. Take away our freedom and you're going to, fight, you're going to have a fight on your hands. <laughs> um, um, they will finally understand that freedom and earthly bread and plenty for everyone are inconceivable together for... For never, never will they be able to share among themselves. They will also be convinced that they are forever incapable of being free because they are feeble, depraved, not entities and rebels. Go down. No, the weak too are dear to us. They are depraved and rebels. But in the end, it's they who will become obedient. That is, they will give themselves over to an authority because if they'd rather do that and live than die. Okay. Um, bottom 253. This deceit will constitute our suffering for we shall have to lie. This is what that first question in the wilderness meant and this is what you rejected in the name of freedom which you placed above everything. And this question contains the great mystery of this world. Had you accepted the loaves, you would have answered the universal and everlasting anguish of man as an individual and the whole of mankind together, namely before whom shall I bite down. That's another one because remember the the other temptation was, um, Satan said, from the height of the mountain above, you can have um, control over all the kingdoms of the world if you just bow down and worship me. And Christ's answer is, and you shall serve no gods but me. Now let me stop for a second. Let me just stop, because I, I don't want to take much time, but just a minute. Why did Christ say no to the loves? What was he saying? I just want to get clear for a second, because we've got three, three temptations. Because he knows Satan is that God is above Satan. He wasn't going to follow what Satan wanted. He's correct. Yeah. That was just easy. <laughs> what's the issue here, though? I mean, that's true for all of them. What's the, what's the, this is the, the beginning of his ministry. What is he doing? What, what is, wait, this is the beginning of his ministry. Right. And <clears throat> Satan is saying he's starving. Right. That is, he can die. Or he thinks. You know, he can starve. And he says, you can, you can save your life. Because you, have, you are your God. You have the power of miracles. You can transform these stones into bread. He says no. Why did Christ say no to that? Does it have to do with being bread? <laughs> I don't know. Does it have to do with bread? And yeah, but bread what? And That's exactly what I'm... I don't know. I mean, his... Whatever, his... Sustenance, his whatever it is, doesn't depend on physical. Piece of Although he's got a body now, he's not God outside True. of time. Okay, I don't. Let's put that aside. But, <laughs> oh, but you know, he is. Go ahead. No, no, go on. No, I mean, I. I mean, that's just derailing him from the purpose of what he's setting out to do. He is God. But I mean, end of discussion. 
I mean, well, there's, there's nothing more to discuss there. He doesn't need there to is more Except he's doing wait, wait. it for, he's not just doing, he's doing it for us. us. Yes, he's doing Because that's the only thing we'd understand. Yeah, yeah but let's understand it. I want to say, Carl, do you? He's putting levels of importance to the devil. What is more important than bread to live? And to humans. Yes, it's God. Now, I don't think he's saying, don't eat. He's saying, where, where are things in the level? You know how important eating is, or you'll die. This is really more important. Is he talking about faith? He's actually, I mean, even though he's, he's Christ, and he's, he's human, and he's divine, he still is, um, his faith in his Father is more important than... Yeah, let's let me turn this around. What would happen? What would have? I mean, this is a hypothetical, but let me. What would have happened if he'd done it? Done. If he turned oh. the breads into stone? No, because I, I think this is all preceding his ministry. This has everything to do directly with his life with us and something he's asking of us. Because Ivan precedes this by saying, "You asked everything you did was to help man be free," and he's saying what you asked of him was impossible because man's too weak. And he's giving this temptation. So let's turn it around. Which I think is a... That's one of my beefs on that whole thing. Sorry? He's talking to God about... That he... Yeah, that man is weak. And he's totally leaving out the... What if he, what if he turned Wait, the stones... Wait, he's totally leaving out... Created in, <coughs> God created us in his image. And he gave us the freedom... And the inquisitor, the story, the inquisitor keeps accusing him of making lesser beings who can't get the job done. Yeah. Like, but the way that he keeps hammering the story is, it's like, well, you knew how it was going to end because you made a bunch of doofuses, and now they're acting like doofuses. What? And he's turn discounting the yeah. the belief that. We really came from a place and God, yeah. part of us. He's totally discounting that yeah. part of the equation. I think. What answer the question? Can you what what would have what what would happen? Why did he do that? What would have happened if he had turned the stones into bread? What difference does it make? This if this is all about us, what difference would it if he'd done that? What would have it? What would its effect have been on us? Since he asked us to follow him in, in, in the wanting us to be free. Well, would we not have a higher purpose? Would we not have a he didn't have to prove anything. Of, Sorry? He didn't have to prove anything to God. No, it wasn't to prove anything. It Say it again, Gita. He did not have to prove anything to the devil. And Christ. Why, yeah, why yeah. would he be doing what the devil is saying? So, that's, that makes cool. How would that help us? <laughs> if, if, he turned, if he turned the stones into bread, I'm, I'm assuming it wouldn't have been good for us. Give why? us the answer. Huh? No. <laughs> no. Because no, this to our me. Faith, our faith. I mean, he showed us an example of faith in dire circumstances. He deferred to his father. And by doing that, he shows us that we are to defer to him. He is our Savior. To not let bread or material things take over for us when we're facing, so that, so that the cost of freedom may be at some point in our life. As it was for him, and, and he'd, he'd pick up your cross, unless the seed falls to the ground. 
I mean, over and over again, he's making it clear to us that the danger for us is by making concessions to the world or compromising that we give up something of that, whatever you want to call it, that we're made in his image. But something of that nobility, whatever you want to call it, will be lost. Something of it. Yeah, but we're human. That's part of the deal. Well, that's what that's what the no, Mark. That's what the Inquisitor is saying. We're human. We're not Christ, and so Christ had no business saying no to him, saying, "I won't turn the bread into I won't turn the stones into bread." Christ had no business doing that because Christ could do it. He was God. Yeah, but, but we are. Wait, wait, listen to it. Yeah, listen. Christ is Christ and man is man. And the Done. devil's a devil. Yes, except that. And hold on, listen to her. Hold on, God. Except that what, what the devil is saying is that you put too much on man because man is not Christ. Right. And, they and they can't do it. And Christ is saying, yes, they can. Yeah. They may not like wow. it. Yeah. And it the cost may be, be great. Easy. Hold it. And, it may and, cost them their life, yeah, but right. they can do it, and, and it's right to ask it. Yeah, no problem. Because of what Hector, I mean, sorry, yeah, Chester said, that say, man was right. made in God's image. Wait, what? Because he said the scientists say, because they don't have an understanding of metaphysical reality. The scientists say man's an animal. Freud says it, okay, these I'm animal instincts. This, the ultimate the, instinct driving man is self-preservation. He will do anything to keep alive. Every what this I mean, we're only here at the first temptation right now. The first temptation is making clear it, there's a danger for us if we make bread everything. Faith, this nobility that we're made in God's name, because it's too easy to give them up. And if we do, we've seen the cost of the Turks killing kids, I mean the violence, the So here, let me go to the second one. The second one was throw yourself down and serve. No, throw yourself down and the angels will. And the angel yeah. will, will, will angels will save you. Save. save. And he says, don't tempt God. What's he, why is that important for, for my, my whole, all of these questions are going to us. Why, what did he, what was the reason, why, what was the reason for refusing him then? What does it tell us about his concern for us in doing what he did there? The, the, the three, bread, authority, serving, worshiping. This one is, um, throw yourself down and God will save you. What's... Um, authority, authority. Okay, so throw yourself down, authority in this world. It's, it's authority, no, it's, it's, it's throw yourself down, God will save you. And he says, don't test God. What's he saying about that? Because he says, don't tempt the Lord your God. What's he saying to us? From answering it the way he did. Well, your faith should depend upon miracle. If you know your faith should be, if you give me this, I will right. believe in you, type of thing. It's A not, quid, quid pro quo. Yeah. Yeah. There was no quid pro quo. That was a perfect uh, passage. <laughs> <laughs> Carl. Yep. I don't know if you had a question or a comment. No. Um, well, we're okay. taking God like magic. 
you know, and if you don't perform for us, then we're not going to believe. Good. What does that do to God, our image of God? It shrinks to yeah. nothing. We can use him. Right. right. Yeah. We'll use him for, and if our end is self-preservation, where will we stop? It's like an addiction. Where, what will we not do? to get him to rescue us. Just be stupid, right. that's all. Yeah, well, <laughs> great. Again and again and again. Welcome to the Middle East. Yeah. I'm all right there. What was it Father Father James used to say? God is not a celestial ATM. You know? <laughs> Go back to list 256. Um, come down from the cross and we will believe that you. God, it's just stunning. You know, why didn't he come down? Um, if their faith depended on him doing that, they would keep doing that all their lives. They would never face things themselves. I mean, they would be using God. So you did not come down again because, again, you did not want to enslave man by a miracle. Because of that, if, because here, I mean, I just think Catherine was right on. If our faith, I mean, the interesting paradox here is that most believers in the early centuries came to believe because of miracles Christ performed them. But what happens if you start using that as a, as a bargaining chip and you don't get the miracle you want? What will happen? You quit believing. You quit believing. Your faith is gone. Right? Once again, it's like it's using God for yourself. Um, so to go back to Suzanne's point and, and what Chester was saying, that... Um, Yvonne's whole position is based on a, a much more modern reading of man, self-preservation, an animal, that there's, no, there's, no, there's nothing transcendent in the human soul. From the beginning, when we looked at the Iliad, the Odyssey, all of them, you know Aristotle, Plato, every one of them said there was something transcendent in the human soul. To reduce man to the merely animal is to wish on him misery, because there's something nobler. Start treating man like he, I asked you this image, or in the modern world, beginnings high or low. Flannery O'Connor, if you remember the story, Heart of the Park. Remember she goes to the museum? What does she find in that cage? Shriveled up. Oh, my yes, a, a, a shrunken pygmy. It was an image of modern man. It's what the modern mind has done to the human person. That we are a product of these forces, these impulses, these determinisms. There's nothing transcendent. There's nothing noble. Um, if we ever get to a point where we presume on God f f because this is what we want, we won't stop using him. So he refused the second one. And the third one was, um, um, I'll give you power. I think I've dealt with him. I'll give you power if you serve me. It's authority. But he had no authority, though. That, that was the whole... Well, except the devil owns this world. Um, that's well, what he was saying. Well, no, there's a truth. I mean, God has left us here. He's, he's given, I mean, that's the Job story. He's given the, the whole opening of the Job story is the devil, the devil, it opens with the devil coming to God and saying, these men are not righteous. The, the whole tension of that is the devil's going to show that these people are as not as righteous as they seem. Because the danger for us is living by appearances. <coughs> That's the whole drift of that story. And, and God said, go ahead, because this goes right to your point. Um, God believes that there's something nobler in us, that Job will withstand those temptations. What he loses, property, family, wife, everything. 
And you, and you know how he, he goes down swinging. He's really a feisty. I mean, he does everything to you know, ang get angry with God, and then finally God tells him to knock it off. And, and there's, I mean, that wonderful ending which says, who are you to... And then Job has to listen to God. Were you there in the beginning? What do you think you know? That you can judge all of this? I mean, what, what we're learning from the Job story is that there's some great dignity in a man that's so easily lost when you depend on externals. Um, you judge your life that way. And what, what we're seeing here is that there is something noble to man and the whole modern world has taken it away. And, and it's left us feeling impotent and acutely sensitive to the suffering that goes on in our world. This is does for Yvonne. Authority. What's, what's the, um, let's say he had given Christ authority over the world. Why did Christ refuse that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, what? God, save me. Save, somebody somebody <laughs> save me, please. Doc. Because, um, because the world is not worth it. Um, this is not our home. And the world is, is not worth it. So you have political power over all the world. And you go to hell. What kind of power is yeah, that? Yeah, good. Um, so the three miracles are crucial. It, it, Dostoevsky sees it, Ivan sees it in some sense, that, that these are not just mindless things, that every one of them spoke to temptations we face as humans. And Christ had to answer them if we were to have any chance of following him to going on to doing something better, that we're made in the image of God. And remember, this is, this is at a time when Mother Holy Russia is, um, is cracking, its faith is being lost, there isn't, the modern rationalisms are coming in. So these are not small, this is not a small matter here. Um, let, me, let me stop. What does this say about Yvonne, the Grand Inquisitor, and what does it say about the Catholic Church? Because Yvonne is pretty critical of the Catholic Church. Stay to the text. <laughs> well, obviously he's given this question a lot of thought. <laughs> yes, for sure, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's not like he just decided it's a crock. I mean, Let's he take may have come to the decision that it's a crock, but he's done it through yeah. a lot of yeah. this is a dense searching. Yeah, yeah. Take the first question. What does it say about Yvonne? As a character, I, yeah, Alyosha wouldn't have come up with this. Wait, Alyosha wouldn't have come up with this. Dimitri wouldn't. Sorry, Mark. Go ahead. Not giving up, maybe. Not only he's giving up, he's certainly questioning. Yeah, yeah. He's Can you, either one of you flesh that out a little bit? Can make sense in terms of what he's laying out in the story, the Grand Inquisitor. He, he's giving. A, Stay in the story. Yeah, he's giving examples and saying that the wrong choices were made. And no matter what, the guy, you know, Christ comes down again in the story, they kill him again, right? That man is going to do that no matter what. So man, These bad things. Yes, the, the, the bad things that they are not going to accept Christ, they're not going to accept God no matter what because it's their nature. They're lowly or not smart enough. They're weak. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so that they haven't learned it. 
and at least that's what I read. And why is that peculiar to Yvonne? What is that? I mean, my question is, like, what I, guess, does it I guess say about him? Faith, I guess losing faith in all things humanity, and that includes love, that includes um, remorse, that includes um, when, when you see him interact with characters and the way he feels or the way it's portrayed as it's written. It's almost detached. Sorry, it's almost detached. Detached. He, Yvonne, emotionally or what? You know, it's yeah. it's just, it's just not there. So I think maybe what we would see as as normal reactions or or uh, normal emotions towards something is not altogether there. There's something else not right. No. I don't know how to describe it. Connection. I don't. He, it's like he doesn't connect. Yeah, there, there's something not not right. Not. <laughs> I think the reason though. For him to be so disappointed in everything is because at one time he probably wasn't disappointed in everything, or he understood there was a potential for something, and I think he got let down. Hmm? Got let down. Sounds like one of the modern analyses that he's critical of in the story. I don't know that you can be disappointed, so disappointed if you, at one point you didn't think it would be different. Uh, oh, that's true. That's true. You had to have hope for something and right. crush <clears> before you had crushed. disappointment. Otherwise, you wouldn't have disappointed. I think it has to do with so, yeah. Yvonne's. Wait, sorry. No. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I think it has to do with Yvonne starts out with those stories of those horrible things done to children and would Alyosha be willing to create a perfect world if creating a perfect world meant killing one child and he's, you know, and Alyosha says no. And I think that at least part of what Yvonne's doing here is making a case against human suffering. That um, what he's saying is that Christ gave all of these right decisions that set the standard here, and man is only capable of here, and so there's going to be all this, all this suffering that he's against. And so he's, he's saying Christ could have taken all of the suffering away, and he didn't. Yeah. And which that's really upsetting. Sense. Which really that's goes really to a question to of faith. I mean, he's, he's right. to, um, if, if you're, if, I mean, one of the answers we have to hold on to here, all of the sons were um, abandoned in their childhood, so they all, none of them grew up knowing each other or their father. Right. That's a condition true. And each one of them is radically different. So in one sense, this is Dostoevsky's way of going against the environmentalist. I mean, they're all radically different. But what, so we can go into causes, you know, it caused this in him. And, but what we see is that each one of them represents a kind of different spiritual dynamic. Um, Dimitri is far more heroic warrior, like he's more Achilles-like, he's ready to fight, honor, he's a soldier. Ivan is an intellectual, far more in his mind, and because he lives, I think, so much in his mind, there is a disconnect between his head and his heart. He, he doesn't open, and I think one of the reasons he doesn't is because he, he can't allow himself to feel because he's so sensitive to suffering. Um, he says, I give my ticket back. Um, he's so appalled at what humans can, he's so angered at, at what humans are capable of doing with each other. Um, let me stop here because I want to, I want to, um, I want to try to, 
Um, I want to try to. Better really think about some of this. Oh, how does the Grand Inquisitor end? We, I can't. We have to take a minute with this. He lets Christ go. Huh? Yeah, quite he lets Christ go. Yeah, but what happens? Well, he kisses him. Who kisses who? Christ kisses the Grand Inquisitor. Yeah. And then what happens before Alyosha and Ivan separate? What does that mean? Forgiveness. That in some sense, the well, we've got to go to the Catholic question. I knew there was something. In one sense, he's forgiving Alyosha like Christ forgives the Grand Inquisitor. That, that the bitterness and the hardness and the effort on the Grand Inquisitor to do exactly what you guys have been talking about, to to take this away because humans are incapable of doing it, um, which shows a lack of faith that they don't make a place for suffering. And what we're going to see, I mean, the whole half of the book is going to be loaded with awful sufferings. The kids, um, Alyosha Al Al is going to go through a spiritual crisis. <clears throat> Ivan's going to go through a horrible spiritual crisis. Dimitri's going to be accused of murdering. But what does, what does this say about Ivan's understanding of the Catholic Church. Can I say something? Yeah. At the beginning of the book, wasn't that Ivan and Zosima talking about, uh, you know, whether the church should have the power or the state should have the power? And doesn't this, what we're talking about now in the Grand Inquisitor, really uh, reflect back on that and mm -hmm. what he's trying, Ivan thinking, he's trying to figure out, well, um, since Christ made this impossible, uh, and he's trying to reason this out within his, within his own head, since Christ has obviously made this impossible, and he did give authority to the church, and the church has, and, and he mentions the, the, um, some of the sins of the church at the time, the Inquisition and all this, you know, maybe we would be better just accepting the fact that uh, evil does exist, give it to the church, and let the church control this. What's his accusation exactly of the Catholic Church? Oh, well... How does he characterize it? Jeannie? I think he's saying that the church, is, the church is not giving people their freedom because the church doesn't believe that humans are capable of doing right if they're free. So the church is going to just make all the rules and regulations and tell humanity what they need to do. But they're also, he also talks about, and I'm not quite sure how this relates, but he also talks about how the church is lying to the people, not, not telling them the truth, because some of the higher level people in the church understand all this, but they're not, Explaining it to the people. They're lying. Yeah. yeah. Right. And the people are going to go to hell, but they're going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, yeah. And the church is in. That's the church is in control of this. Karen, what's? How do you understand what Ivan is saying about the Catholic Church? What's his? What's his criticism? How, how is he characterizing the church? I guess what strikes me is the. Um, position of suffering, that he doesn't see suffering as uh, uh, something good for someone, that suffering is shouldn't be necessary. But how is the church 
taking that away. Because criticism is man that man's too weak, and the church is, and Christ um, did what he did because he believed that man was capable of more, you know, that Susanna said. Um, how is the church, um, what is it doing to reflect that attitude that all it's doing is keep, is working on the basis that man is this weak creature and incapable of living the kind of freedom that Christ wanted us to live? What's it doing? Is it trying to take the place of God? Wait, let me, oh, Karen, sorry. do you, sorry, just. <clears throat> I don't have an answer. <laughs> go, go ahead. Go ahead. I it, well, when you were talking, I mean, in the way you were talking, it was like the church. Even when they they had Grand Inquisitor, Inquisitor uh, you know, says, you, you know, we're going to kill you again. The church, instead of being an instrument of God, bring the people to God, was taking the position of God. But how do they do that? That's what are they doing? Oh, to, are they doing? to according to Yvonne. That's my question. Taking their freedom away. How? <laughs> By doing what? Conscience. Hmm? Is there a conscience? The people that do it my way and, and since I'm the church, it's okay? For the Pope. They're lying to them? Oh, the Pope? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, that's, that's kind of where I'm having a problem. I don't really understand what he, what he means by it. Well, well, I do, but, 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 but I don't know about the history of the church that much about the history. Just stay with the text, Jeannie, because you've got, I mean, you're, you're feeling something here. What is it, what, what in the text? I think, is there any I evidence? Think, to, I think it's saying that the church authorities are making rules for the people to follow because the people cannot be expected to figure things out for themselves and do the right thing. Good. So they just say, you follow our rules, and you know, then everything will be okay, and don't question anything, let us be in charge, and, and you know, life will be good for you. Good. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, it seems to me you nailed it, but, but now include in that his concern about miracles and, um, and mystery. Because his argument was that um, that the church has done everything it can to take away miracles and mystery because if man is left with either of those, his weakness will overcome them. He wants to do everything to get free of them, and the church makes it easy for him to do that by doing what you just said. So implicitly he's saying the church is, I mean, whatever it's doing is not giving a place to miracles and mystery because man can't bear those. So my question is, where is he on that? What's, what's his, I mean, I think you, what you've said, Jeannie, was right on. Can you relate it to his argument about mysteries and miracles? Well, that he wants, he, he believes that the church wants the people to only be concerned about the concrete, everyday facts of living and not think about higher things or try to understand you know, the greater spiritual mysteries because if they do that maybe they'll figure out that the, the authorities in the church are trying to dupe them. I don't know. Well, it's top, top, top <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Top Where? 248. Uh, but the devil never rests. always arisen in mankind some doubt as to the authentic authenticity of these miracles. 
Right, just then in the north of Germany, a horrible new heresy appeared, a great star like a lamb. That is, the church fell upon the fountains of waters, and they were made bitter. The heretics began blasphemously denying miracles. So, so I, you know, I, I <coughs> go back into this text, like go back into the text, and there it is. So are they referencing the Reformation then, or? I mean, yeah, obviously Germany. that, what you just read, <laughs> not think it is, but, um, Go back even farther at the bottom of the page. Um, or even with greater faith, for 15 centuries have gone by since men wait, ceased. Wait, what, what page? 247, the page before. He's talking about a, um, a stage presentation. It says, 15 centuries have gone by since he gave the promise to come to his king. 15 centuries since his prophet wrote, Behold, I come quickly. Because lots of people expected the end days to occur then. Of that day and that hour knoweth not even the Son, but only my heavenly Father, as he himself declared while still on earth. But mankind awaits him with the same faith and the same tender emotion. Oh, even with greater faith for 15 centuries have gone by since men cease to receive pledges from heaven. Believe what the heart tells you, for heaven offers no pledge. You can't use God. I mean, we're back to the arguments we made earlier. Only faith in what the heart tells you. True, there were also many miracles then. There were saints who performed miraculous healing. To some righteous men, according to their biographies, the Queen of Heaven herself came down. So he's acknowledged. This is really interesting, and it goes to, it really seriously raises this question about reason for me for just asking. In the early centuries, when men lived more by faith, think about what happened with Christ after the temptations, where he goes into Galilee. They're all in awe of what he does, and immediately things that was sour. And he says, faithless generation, you know, prophets aren't believed, and his power to do anything ceased because they ceased to have faith. So in the early centuries, before the scientific revolution, men were, lived their lives more in accord with faith. It governed in some sense. During that time, Queen of Heaven herself came down, but the devil never rested in there. There had already risen in mankind some doubt as to the authenticity of these miracles. Just then in the north, in Germany, a horrible heresy appeared. A great star, like a lamp, fell upon the fountains. They were made bitter. Those heretics began blasphemy, denying miracles. That is, remember, I made this argument since we did the Catholic Reformation thing, that, that what happens in the Reformation is, is what I'm calling a, um, the advent, what do I call it? The advent of the sign, that human beings begin to use reason and treat super-temporal realities in temporal terms. So they, it's reductive. They bring everything down to the level of understanding by reason. Mm. That's one of the marks of the Reformation. And then we've got the scientific revolution, and two centuries later, this. And we know what his feelings about Luther are, because even in the Grand Inquisitor, he talks critically, because one of the things that Luther did was take away the sacraments. Um, so did Calvin in Geneva. So. One of the things that's going on behind Dostoevsky's mind here is clearly that we've entered a rationalizing period in history that's had the effect of weakening people's faith. That they don't risk their faith, they don't live it as much as they did, and one of the effects of that is that Christ can't do what he did before. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, unless somebody has an offer, I'm gonna take a wild stab at this, my own question, because it's, it's hard to, I think Jeannie, what Jeannie said was 
um, is completely faithful to the text. It's hard to it's hard to answer my question how he sees the Catholic Church because he says, you know, 18, 1,500 years ago you did this, you did this, and at one point towards the end he says, and this is really interesting I, because he associates it with the Catholic Church, page 257, exactly eight centuries ago we took from him what you so indignantly rejected. This is the third temptation, authority. That last gift he offered you when he showed you all the kingdoms of the earth. We took Rome and the sword of Caesar from him and proclaimed ourselves so rulers of the earth. That's that point where King Pepin gives those estates in the north of Italy and I think in the south of Sweden to the Pope. So that we call them the papal states. And what that seemed to do was solidify the political power of the Pope. He associates that with Rome as he has through the whole thing. So... Um, let me just, here, on 260 in the middle, it's Rome and not even the whole of Rome. That isn't true. They're the worst of Catholicism, the Inquisitors, the Jesuits. Um, he, he goes on. He, he identifies um, what I'm going to call the political, politicalization of the church in Roman terms. Um, he identifies it with, I think, um, a tendency to to make power more important than serving God and protecting miracles. Um, and one of the reasons, and it's just, I, it's a question of my mind, I can't answer it. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating there. Um, I'm just not, it's not clear to me how, how aware he is of the central role of, of um, the sacraments in the life of the church, because the sacraments are fundamentally mysterious, they're miracles. They, they go on daily, because in, in Russia, you, as you read, you know the, the priests are out in the villages, they're doing everything. There's no sense of a hierarchy or a church. And I don't have a sense that communion's an active part of ongoing life, the, the priests and everything, the monks are out. The, 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 the tradition of the elders, which is in danger, we know from the book, is disappearing. Um, it, it just seems to me he thinks of the Western church as being bureaucratic and given to power and somehow he I think he it's a question in my mind I, and it's just a question how much he identifies with what's going on in the church with the Reformation because he's very critical of Luther and he's very critical of Calvin and both of them took away the sacraments so it's a question in my mind whether he doesn't see the church strictly in terms of its authority and not defined in terms of its commitment to a sacred life, or a life of holiness. And that's, that's just, I mean, trying to draw out something. I, he doesn't, I, don't, I can't find anything in the text that, beyond what Jeannie said. But. So, based on what Jeannie said, what's your response is if that's, what he's saying is not correct, that it's not about the rules, that the church is giving people less free will by all their rules and regulations, then what's the response to that? <clears throat> I, I don't know that I can, I mean, to me I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, what is the, what is our, what is our justification for the saying, he's what he said is not true, I guess is what I'm saying. That the church is given these regulations and regulating people, and, and to extend, I, I see that they did. Yeah. I have an answer the, for that. What's the answer? There's a heavenly church and there's an earthly church. 
Okay. There's a secular church. That's what I meant. There's one here, and then there's... Are they white? There are, <laughs> at that period of time, I think the church was very secular. Yeah. I remember the church was built by men. No, but the church, the church was built by men, not God. Yeah. And that there lies the problem. I mean, at one time, like you said, that's what I'm thinking. It was very separate. Yeah. I think we're on the same page. I think so. Yeah. I'm going to get off on a different page because I'm not going to agree with any of this. I think. I mean, I I would agree with Mark that the churches. I mean, it's it's you know people. Minister of the church. Wait, 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 Bob, you agree? <laughs> Write this down. That's maybe, that's maybe the third or fourth time in our last four years, Mark. Hold four on. Years Hold on. Years. I want to finish this. But here, hold on. Because um, we did this We did this in the Protestant sec or the Catholic souls, because I take this very absolutely seriously. Um, Christ gave the authority, his divine authority, to Peter. We know this. The church has an absolute authority given by Christ, so it's going to enforce rules. So, for example, if um, somebody if somebody came along and said that there are no sacramental ministries, no priests, say, or there are no sacraments, because the Reformation thinkers claim both of those things, the church in its authorities followed its rules from Christ and said, no, that's not true. So what it was doing was enforcing an authority because they knew if it didn't, the church would disappear. So the church has always had to uphold an authority. We know from history that there have been times when it's abused its authority. And there's, wait, hold on, hold on. God, God, you can't. The church has abused its authority, but it's still there. And Christ is infallible. There's a quality of something infallible because if it doesn't, I mean, one of the questions that has to be asked in that act of Christ when he said, whatever you loose and bind, mm -hmm. that's a considerable authority. Mm -hmm. This is my, you can argue with me on this, because I'm, I mean, I think I'm with the church on this. He knew that it was essential because he knew that, that um, the church would be susceptible to evil all of its life, mm -hmm. within and without. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, if, if the most popular, the most unpopular institution on the earth for the last 300 years has been the Catholic Church. It's constantly under attack. People are going to say it's, it's driven by rules and regulations, and you know, the, the outside world is going to say um, blind faith. Catholic tells you what to believe, and you do it. That's its criticism. The fact that people are obedient to a truth because Christ asked it doesn't mean they're blind in what they're doing. It means they're serving Christ. So the church has always been in an in I mean, a very very difficult place. Um, so I don't want to load up on one side or the other. I'm, I'm really trying to answer your question in light of what Jeannie said because I think, I think it's a it's a serious question for Yvonne. It's a serious question. The other the other thing that I would add is what I said a minute ago. It's just to underscore a point I already made. If you look at the if you look at the Orthodox world, it's much more fragmented. I think I gave the example when we did the Protestant um, Catholic thing. The Turkish bishop and I think it was the Russian bishop. I'm not sure who they were. Um, excommunicated each other. They would not allow, ex forbid people from their distinct cultures to participate in the rites, even though those rites were the same, because of political differences between them. So the authority is much more diffusive. It's, it's less centralized. There's less of a bureaucracy because the, the Orthodox world is, has been left to the individual cultures and you know, areas to rule themselves. 
So the unity breaks down. I know, I know from my own experiences in the Orthodox Church, from my own and more broadly, that very few people take communion. I mean, they're, they're just very Puritan about it. I mean, there's, a, there's an otherworldly quality to what goes on in the Eastern world that the Western world doesn't have. But one of the differences between the two worlds is the Western world is far more bureaucratic, far more administrative. You know, it's, it's, it's larger, it's more unified. Both worlds have their problems. Um, but don't, don't ever forget, and you're thinking about the two churches, is that there is this authority that Christ gave to Peter, and for a reason, because if you take away those things, the church is gone. And the, the temptation of the world is constantly to push against those things because the world would like to do whatever it wants to do. So. Here, that quick. Next week, I want to look at the Zosima story, the biography. Hold on. Just stop. I'll, I'll go into this next week. In the middle of this book, in the middle of this book, everything's preceded linearly. One thing following another. Okay? In the middle of this book, suddenly, a story is thrust into the middle of it that takes us outside of this sequential time. It's during this period that we go back into Zosima's life and everything that happens. There's a, um, a, um, a stranger, a death. Zosim was involved in some things he's ashamed of. It, it, it led to his life in the monastery. Okay? Um, but so much of what he does takes the form of homilies so that another text outside the boundaries of this text keep entering into this world. So another time dimension comes in. So it's no longer just linear. There's a simultaneity of time. And it's during this time that, um, that Alyosha has his crisis. And when he comes back, it's the Grushenka Alyosha story. When he comes back to be with um, Zosima when P Pacey is praying over him, he has that vision of the Cana, the miracle of Cana, which is the other start of his ministry in the other books. Um, something happens in that dream that radically ch changes the way we look at time in the novel. It's no longer just linear, one thing following another. Something really strange happens. What is it? And why is that important for the book? Okay. Well, my eyes got me. Deep seven. Sorry? I know you know, what this one means, not what it says, but what it means, and what this one means, oh, I see it, but when I'm reading it together, I'm, yep. I'm like, it's easy to get lost, I know, like so, 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 maybe you can go to the last class. Yeah. From the rowdy class. What? Rowdy class. <laughs> Again. We got to keep you on your toes. I'm just saying. That you're doing. <laughs> Some of you more than others. Yeah. <laughs>